Today on episode number 315 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Viviana Petzulo joins me to discuss theory versus practice. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Viviana Petzulo is an AQ credentialed graduate teaching assistant in the Department of Languages, Linguistics and Comparative Literature, and a PhD candidate in Comparative Studies at Florida Atlantic University. She grew up in Italy, studied in France, and worked in Poland. Her journey continued to Florida to pursue her PhD in Comparative Studies. She picked FAU for its focus on preparing graduate assistants for teaching. Viviana, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I know we just got to hear a little bit about your background, but I would love to have you dive in more. Tell us about the various places that you've had an opportunity to teach in in your career. Okay, so as you see already, I hold a BA and an MA from the University of Naples in Italy. And, and then I also studied in France as part of my uh, master's degree at the Ecole Normale. So I was already from my very first year of my undergrad, I was able to see and experience different types of uh, learning techniques in different countries. And then after I graduated from my master, I moved to Poland and I taught Italian language and culture. So I also was able to experience how I was teaching in a different country from where I originally studied. I can see uh, differences among the France, Italy and Poland, but I believe that the main difference is between Europe, we can group all these countries as Europe and in the United States. So for me, it was such a big change when I moved here in 2016 to see how actually people in structure were, were teaching overseas as compared to Europe and to Italy. And talk about that big, big distinction that you saw between the countries in Europe where you taught and where a student and the United States. In Italy, for example, it's more focused around oral presentations. So we read and we study a lot, and then we go and, uh, and have this presentation with the professors during the day of the exam. While, again, in, uh, in the United States, it's more focused around certain papers or projects. So I think this really gives you the chance to, to experience what you studied in, in context. So, and this is already in terms of studying and preparing but also in terms of, of teaching methodologies, because even when you want to get credentials in Italy, for example, you have to take different classes in pedagogy and, uh, for example, language acquisition if you want to teach you know, in, the, in the discipline, but you rarely get the chance to go in the classroom and you know, implement your own, your own techniques. In the United States, on the other hand, for me, and this was shocking for me because when I moved, I started teaching the, the week after I arrived. And for me, it was shocking because, again, I felt I wasn't enough, you know, I, I wasn't prepared, I wasn't ready. 
And so I had actually to challenge myself and to go in the classroom and actually, you know, do all those things I read about, but do it in real life. So it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, certainly I've heard from many people in the United States, but this tends to sadly be across the board, is just a lack of an emphasis in the vast majority of PhD programs, doctoral degrees on the aspect of our roles as professors that involves teaching. Did you find that to be the case for you as well? Not not always having the teaching on teaching and, and more of the emphasis on your discipline? This is a very good question. I can talk from my, from my own experience. And I have to say that um, when I arrived, um, I told you that I started teaching right away. But at the same time, I was also taking a mandatory class on um, second language acquisition. It wasn't called like that, but it was, again, focused on uh, different methodologies, different ways we can actually help our students succeed and, and help students uh, learn a foreign language. So it was theoretical, but I was also putting all this theory into practice because I was actually teaching the class. And this helped me very much because not only I was able to access different resources and talk to my professor, but I also had a group of other fellow PhD or MA students who were TAing at the same time uh, different languages, Spanish, Italian, French. And so we had the chance to, to talk to each other, tell each other stories about, you know, what was happening in the class, what was working, what wasn't working. So for me, it was a good way, you know, to start the program uh, with this kind of experience. And then I was lucky enough to actually to attend the AQ course. And this kind of gave me the same, uh, the same vibe because I was reading and I was, you know, watching videos about different uh, activities and methodologies and pedagogy, you know, but at the same time, AQ was asking me to implement these techniques. So I was able to do the two of them at the time while I was talking to the other people in my cohort, because we, we had at FAU two cohorts, one for faculty and one for TAs. So I actually had the chance to talk to my other fellow graduate teaching assistants and, and talk about, you know, my experience and, you know, how uh, I could, you know, ameliorate some techniques and what was working for them. And especially because we were all coming from different disciplines. So it was interesting to see how the same technique, for example, may be applied uh, in different fields. So in my experience, I, I actually had this kind of training because of my home institution and because of AQ. But I know that um, because, you know, talking to other people, I know that some other institutions don't focus too much on that and they actually prefer training uh, PhD students more in the discipline and more like in research. But it's such a shame because teaching is such a big component of our job and what we do. When you think back to your first year of teaching, is there maybe one big mistake that you were making at the time that now you're able to sort of carry forward with you as a treasure because you, you kind of got it a little bit more figured out? Yes, absolutely. So first year, as I said a little bit before, when I was talking about my background in Italy, I think we are, uh, in Italy, we are, we're used to uh, look up at professors. So we have to follow their footprints and we have to do things exactly the way they do it. So I was trying to, to replicate the same mindset also when I moved here. 
And after one year, I actually realized that I had so much more freedom than I had in my own, own country to, to experiment, you know. And I actually realized talking, I, I had an IOR at the time. So I was always uh, checking with her, like, is it, is it okay if I'm doing this? Is it okay? So at some point she told me, like, don't worry, you can, you know, implement your own techniques, feel free, you know, to experiment, to experience all these, you know, these amazing activities that you are designing for the students. And for me, it was a shock, you know, because I was always used to have somebody who tell me what to do. And now I was in charge for myself and I felt so much empowered. And this is why I think that usually I know that it's not the case for everybody because sometimes TAs have to teach co-teach or help, for example, professors if they are not fully in charge of the class. But I think it's time, especially right now, you know, when this pandemic, you know, I think it's important that TAs are more aware of their contribution to teaching. And it's not always the case, but I think they need to be more aware of what they do, why they do it, and try to really work on their, develop their own teaching style. This is something that probably structures or, you know, universities do not encourage enough. You know, people, should, I mean, not people, graduate teaching assistants should have, you know, should develop their own, uh, their own teaching style. Yeah, I think it, that is definitely true for graduate teaching assistants. I think it's true for all of us that teach to be constantly asking ourselves those questions of what is it that we're doing, being able to name those things and reflect on them, and then to be asking that why question continually. You brought up the pandemic, and those of us in the profession of faculty development wanted to avoid, for the most part, calling this online learning, because what we were doing was, you know, is a, both an art and a science that has been, you know, done for some time. And what, what we were seeing happening wasn't quite that. So um, the, the term that's been used a lot is emergency remote teaching. And tell me about your experience then with early 2020 and what happened. <laughs> okay, so in, in the spring, I was teaching two classes. I was teaching Actually, more than two, but we're going to get there. So I was teaching an online class already. So that stay, it was already online and it stayed online. It was a um, beginner Italian. And I was also teaching a face-to-face class, uh, Intro to Word Lit. So I actually was lucky because this happened during the week of spring break. So I actually had that week to, you know, reorganize my course. So... This was good timing because I actually had that week to, to think of a plan B. Yeah, the, the, main, the main problem with that class, it was that I built it very much around interaction and participation. So participation was such a big part of that class. So I needed to try to find a way to convey the same interaction and participation, you know, communication in a fully online environment. So this wasn't easy, especially because I had a very good class, a very good group. So they were very close to each other and they really liked, you know, talking through the text they were reading. So it was such a bummer for them, for them when we were not able to, to see them in person anymore. So I tried to, for example, to rely a lot on uh, videos. So I used Flipgrid and I turned many of the presentation and assignments on, you know, flip grid so that they could actually talk and look at each other's video and then respond to these videos. 
So, for example, I told them to, to finish their responses always with a question. So this always leads to you know, having a conversation with the peers. And actually, I think this helped to maintain the same you know, energy because it was a very energetic class. And also, for example, on my side, also the communication between the teacher and the students needs to be more or needed to be more personal. So, for example, I recorded video announcements. I had two weekly announcements in which I would you know, film myself uh, explaining uh, not only coming deadlines, but also, for example, some of the material that they were struggling with or responding to frequently asked questions. And I, again, I found it very helpful to, you know, to show my face and they were actually able to see me and comment on it. And this, in a way, like maintained some of the, of the engagement. Yeah, I've seen that some research around whether or not us sharing our faces is going to change the learning outcomes. And what it seems to say is that not it's not necessarily tied to learning directly, but that it does tie to that sense of approachability. And, you know, for us, for any of us, when we're learning, for us to be vulnerable, to have those kinds of failures, try again, you know, having a, a teacher, someone who's our professor, who is approachable really can make a difference for us to have the persistence to be able to overcome those challenges. You're right. I mean, sometimes for students, you may not be comfortable to share videos, but I think it's important for the professor to do it because you have to put your face on it. And I remember talking with colleagues about this issue, you know, like, for example, can we use videos that somebody else, you know, recorded in our own class. And I think it's important that students know who the professor is. So it's important, at least for us, to, to show who we are and what's our message to the class. And we can readjust. In my case, at least, the videos worked fine with, with that class in particular. But I do see the, the, the issue of, you know, sharing videos with, in other contexts. In, I think the video, it's just a way for us to build a community that is outside of the classroom. And this is one of the, I think, one of the main issues, one of the main concerns that we have to face, you know, in this new phase of, in this new phase of education, because we need to find a new way to build a community, because community is so important for, for teaching, especially foreign languages, because we value so much interaction and you know communication and in order to do this we need to have a very strong community of students so for example another way one can do this is to break down you know to split larger classes for example into smaller groups so they don't necessarily have to to share you know their their faces but they can do for example i don't know an instagram of the class and they can do takeovers and then they can share for example different pictures about the culture of, you know, they can choose certain words or they can choose some aspects of the culture they're studying and they can do, you know, takeovers and they can, they can comment the pictures and the videos. And then, you know, you, can, you create an engagement or for example, you can create a body system. So you pair students at the beginning of the semester. So they have a person they can always rely to and they can practice with. And I know that sounds, I know probably, sound silly to pair students, like 
we are not a dating app. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's important because when they're in the class, they bond because they see each other. They sit you know, next to each other in class. So they have the chance you know, to develop real friendships sometimes or relationships. But when they're online, there is a, you know, a, an, extra, an extra step that needs to be taken. So maybe if we actually do it, you know, we do the actual first step, uh, we can bring people together and this may also help them you know, practice more and feel more comfortable like practicing a foreign language that sometimes can be intimidating. It sounds like both you and I were in the fortunate situation where we already had some competence at teaching online and that in our in-person classes just kind of had to turn up the volume a little bit more with the online portions. What advice would you have for people who are just getting started with it? They've done face-to-face and this, this trying to build community online is entirely new to them. And, you know, the technology is really challenging for them too. So they're, so they don't want to take on too many tools or that kind of thing. What's one piece of advice you would have for them? I don't think we need complicated external tools. We can simply use the tools already built in our, in our canvas. But if we keep them clean, organized, and we actually listen to our students and we try to be flexible and accommodate their needs, I think this is going to be an effective course especially because in terms of accessibility, not every student may be actually able to, to participate in activities if they actually are hosted on, I don't know, external complicated websites that require, for example, require them to be on a laptop. So sometimes it's much better to use, I don't know, the Google Suite, for example, that works very nicely on, on the mobile, or maybe instead of a video, we can just do recording of our voice talking about um, the topic for example for the day or explaining some grammar rule in the case of language teaching and these may be even more effective because they can listen to it and they don't even have to you know to watch a full video so keeping it simple does not necessarily mean that we are you know underdoing but actually what may be a way to you know um, to accommodate many more students. When you gave the suggestion earlier on for your students using Flipgrid to ask a question at the end of their post, that's the kind of thing that is a practical example of what you're talking about. People think they have to learn every single tool and every single feature of those tools, but sometimes having a really, really small set of them, but then thinking really creatively about how to best leverage them to create the kind of engagement and the kind of pedagogy that you want to have in your classes can be so important. And I so appreciate your advice to listen to our students. That's one of the things that I'm struggling with a little bit this summer because I'm not seeing as many of my students. I'm not teaching a summer school class, for example, and then just trying to think through about the fall and do the best that I know how to do. And I know that I'm not alone in that. And I also also want to remember that, you know, that a lot of the practice that and the mistakes that we've made in the past, we're going to be able to use no matter what happens come fall. So this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I have a couple of things to share. First off, Sarah Rose Kavanaugh shared in the Chronicle of Higher Education an article called How I'm Spending My Pandemic Summer Vacation. And it reminded me a little bit of a syllabus. And she's kind of you know committed to lifelong learning. And she's looking at the kinds of things that she wants to do around the civil rights uprising that is happening in our country and to equip herself in those 
issues and she's looking at her pedagogy and she's looking at all kinds of things that she wants to do over the summer. Lots of great resources. I would highly encourage people to go check out that article, perhaps create a syllabus for themselves for the remainder of the summer when you're listening to this. And um, just for us all to be doing that important work of equipping ourselves. And then the second thing I'd like to recommend is it's both an app, but it's less about the app and it's more about the practice. And that is, I was finding myself, um, this is a bit of an understatement, getting quite scattered. <laughs> and I'm sort of <laughs> chuckling because I am someone who wrote a book on productivity and I, I tend to have some pretty good organizational systems going. That all didn't happen for a while. It was um, difficult to pull out of. And for me, I found an app that actually I had used a while back, but just started using it again. It's called Agenda. It is for the Mac, although if you're on a PC, then you could also do the same thing I'm about to talk about with Evernote, just as one example. But the idea here is one app for notes that you take having to do with meetings. I'm in a ton of meetings right now. I'm on our COVID-19 leadership team, and I'm also lead our faculty development efforts. And so there is a lot going on. And I'm finding just having that one place, if, if it's a meeting, and then it connects with my calendar. So it pulls in who was at that meeting, what was the name of it, and then I can just type in the notes. And there's also a way of indicating an action item that needs to take place as well. And then I can copy that and put it over into my task manager. So my recommendation is for the app agenda. If you're on a Mac, if you are not, please do not fear. <laughs> use whatever app it is that you use for taking notes, but just discipline yourself so that when that meeting starts, you've, you're going to the same place and using the same kinds of naming convention so that you can more easily follow up and, and make sure that you're tagging those action items as well. So those are my recommendations and I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Actually, it's uh, very interesting what you said about the app because I wasn't about to suggest an app, but since you mentioned it, you can also use Notion for the same purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and this works on the PC. So I'm actually, for the same reason I'm using for my meeting notes, I'm using Notion and works on a PC just fine. So yeah, maybe an option for the PC users. And another recommendation that I have actually ties to what you said about productivity. And it seems to be odd because of what I said about, you know, giving importance to teaching and not especially for a graduate teaching assistant to focus on teaching and not so much on research, but not to make it your only priority. But my recommendation is the book by Wendy Laura Belcher, writing your journal article in 12 weeks. I know it's very famous. People already know it probably, but I found it especially um, helpful during the, you know, this period for me, because even though you are not writing, you know, an article, it gives you a routine, you know, it gives you like achievable goals that you can set for yourself and helps you in a way, you know, creating this, uh, this habit of writing and working, even though, Everything about around you may be all over the place. Maybe you are no longer going to the office, no longer going to you know, to the department and see your colleagues, but creating your routine just for yourself, you know, help can help you feel more productive and help you feel more that you're, you're, you're on track. So she recommends 400 words per day. And I'm actually following her challenge and is working very is working very well and this not necessarily have to be you know words for an article even though this is the main purpose of the book but again this may be a small challenge for you to to leave your 
to live every day as you have something to give. Mm, that's wonderful. I love the way that you express that too, because there are some days when we just need to forgive ourselves and realize that, <laughs> you know, just take taking a shower, getting out of bed, you know, the, the, some of those little things that we can do to nourish ourselves are important. And then on the days when we have anything left, how wonderful to have a structure that can carry us through when our brains are having a hard time um, doing that for us like they might normally. And it doesn't have to be like complicated or, you know, impossible to achieve. If it's, if it's small, you know, like 400 words is not much, but if you can focus on that, you, you, you feel better at the end of the day. At, at least I do because I have my dissertation to write. So I felt when, the, when summer started, I felt like, how am I going to be able to write, you know, a whole dissertation in the middle of all of this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is like taking it like baby steps, 400 words at a time and I'm going, you know. Yeah. Viviana, it's so wonderful to have been introduced to you through AQ. And I'm just so glad that we got to have today's conversation and we got to learn from you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you much for having me, Bonnie. It was such a pleasure. I I love your podcast. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. I didn't even know that until just now. I'm glad to have you as part of the community now. It's official. Thanks once again to Viviana for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you would like to get the show notes for today's episode and the links to those recommendations, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 315. It's episode 315. And um, I just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing to listen to podcasts like this, to read books, to take that theory, put it into practice in your teaching and continually working to serve our students better. It is an honor to be doing all of this in community with you. I'm more grateful for this community than ever. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.